Welcome to the Carry On Podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Rowland. I'm really excited to have special guest Amal Torres with us today. She is a congressional candidate for Maryland District 3. Thank you, ma'am, for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Lindsay. I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, can you please tell us a little bit about your background to start out with? Sure, sure. So a uh, quick story. Um, I wasn't lucky enough to be born in this amazing country. I was born in Mogadishu, Somalia. So I fled a civil war with my family, single mom, raised by one, didn't really grow up so well off. Um, yeah, joined the military in the middle of undergrad. I was the first to get admitted to undergrad, but decided to go the military route instead. Um, there I served as an intel analyst and uh, did a whole host of things ranging from operational on the ground work to uh, strategic level, serving the interests and priorities of senior level decision makers. And um, did that for about 12 years, uh, six of which active duty. And then it was a about, you know, the withdrawal of Afghanistan, where I decided that it made sense for me to shift focus from the DOD and that level to potentially now, I guess, running for Congress. So is that recent that you, because I saw you were stationed at Fort Meade. Is, is this recent that you just left the military? Uh, no, no, no. So I have been DOD my entire like adult life, but I was only in the military for six years and then 12 years as a whole in the DOD as a civilian and as a contractor. Okay. All right. And then um, you talked about in your Fox interview or your, yeah, your interview that you decided that you could not do the job anymore because I'll let you tell why, but. Yeah. Yeah. So it wasn't that I couldn't really do the job per se. Um, the job's great. Don't get me wrong. Being um, an Intel analyst, that was my bread and butter. I loved it supporting that mission set. It was, um, as you know, as a federal civilian, you have to take an oath um, not too uh, dissimilar to uh, serving an active duty where you obey all orders from all officers appointed over you to include um, the commander in chief. Right. And mm-hmm. that being said, there's an innate obligation to serve apolitically. That means it doesn't matter who's in power, you carry out all orders without any reservation. Um, and after witnessing the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I went more into detail um, on Fox, but I had somebody that was in my unit deploy there for the second time within a year. And, you know, Um, he was killed in that withdrawal and it impacted me on a level that caused me to question, you know, how do I see myself serving this amazing country? I'm sorry to hear about that. Yeah. I think that that was very um, um, earth shattering for many of us, the, the way they withdrew. And I still, though I, though it has sort of left the news stream, I still believe what we did was completely wrong. And I think about um, the Afghanistan people almost every day. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've been there since the early 2000s, shortly after 9-11. And, you know, it's a multi-generational deployment and the occupation, I'm sorry, the, you know, the, our presence, our U.S. presence in that region, you know, is worth, you know, re-examining. And the fact that we went there in the first place, I know that was always up for conversation and not beyond conversation, but how we handled the withdrawal, I think, wasn't in full respect to the people and the partner forces that we were there to support the government that, that we said we were there to support and our service members that have dedicated their lives and their careers to that AOR. Yeah, absolutely. It was absolutely heart shattering. And um, yeah, 
Um, but I want to move on. So I think you talked about this a little bit already, but tell me why you're running for Congress. I always ask everybody, and why are you running for Congress? Yeah, somebody once uh, asked me, they're like, so why did you decide to put on the kick me sign? And I, at first, I didn't really get the joke. I was like, what do you mean kick me? You're just, you know, shaking hands, kissing babies. And you're just like, please vote for me. I'll do the best job. But no, it really is putting on the kick me sign because um, it, you're, you're truly serving in a capacity that is different. You're, you're asking, you're applying for a job and asking the constituents to hire you. You know, the campaign is really on an, a giant interview process, a very expensive one at that. But um, so why did I decide to run? Um, short answer service. Um, since I was 19 years old, I've served uh, this country in uniform, out of uniform, as a contractor, as a civilian. And you know, in that capacity, you're talking about national security and it's a very narrow scope of service and a very quiet one at that. And when I saw, like I said, the Afghanistan withdrawal and really what's happening in our country after the COVID-19, um, the shutdowns, the economic impacts that that's had on us, the rising cost of living due to inflation. Um, I live in Maryland, so crime is a perpetual issue. It's an existential issue in Maryland, which it really doesn't have to be given that we're the number one country in the world um, for a lot of things. Um, education, you know, you have one of the highest taxed uh, uh, states in the entire country and our education level just really doesn't mirror the public funding that goes into it. So it was a culminating, um, yeah, it was just a culminating, culminating series of events and circumstances that just made me realize that maybe I could serve differently and that would be an elected office at the federal level, which I have expertise and experience in. So that's why. Um, this question is a little bit redundant, but um, how does being a Somali immigrant shape how you look at running for Congress and how will it shape your policy decisions? Absolutely. Um, I think having perspective is important in every aspect of life. And as a Somali immigrant, um, you know, I, I think the, the elephant in the room is always like Ilhan Omar, right? Um, and the way to differentiate myself is I I chose to serve this country that has welcomed me with open arms. I'm a true patriot. I love this country dearly. And the perspective it gives me that parallels what happened in Somalia is Somalia lost its sovereignty due to civil war. And you're talking about people who speak the same language, who have the same culture, same identity, who tore themselves apart at the seams and to sheer chaos and anarchy due to, you know, individual differences in beliefs and values. And there's some level of that, that, you know, of feeling that I've lost a country that I have in America, where I see that rapid um, deteriorating level of polarization that's happening in our country, the, the mud flinging across partisan lines and people who are, who are feeling grossly misrepresented by one side or another. Um, so the, the divide that I'm seeing reminds me a lot of Somalia. So I think the perspective I bring in is a, a deep sense of an allegiance to unity and doing what's best for the Americans and the country first. Because if I go up to Congress and much like the incumbent that I'm running against today, who's John Sarbanes, he's been in office since I was in high school in 2007. And, 17 years, right? Or 16 years now? Yeah. So like, I can't do mental math that quickly, but yeah, it was like 2007. And now you're looking at his name is recognizable because of his father, right? And so he's essentially taken the seat for granted and I can't do that. 
I've never taken my uniform for granted. I've never taken my service as a civilian for granted. And every day I show up, it's with true faith and allegiance to the Constitution. So that's what I bring. I chose to be an American. I chose to run for office. I chose to serve. And that's what my constituents and my fellow Americans can expect of me. That is a great answer. I absolutely love that answer. Um, Oh, thank you. (laughs) Love that one. Um, so I was, you're welcome. Uh, but I mean that though. Um, so I was looking at your video. Well, I love your website and I love the video that you did. And I spent a lot of time looking at videos, um, on people's websites that are running for Congress and Senate and, um, and also like governor. And so, um, loved your video. I thought it was really good. Um, you talk about, and this is something that I, um, studied a lot when I was getting my master's in public administration. Um, you talk about mm-hmm. group think and how that's dangerous. Um, yes. Can you expound on that? Because I just, I, I feel you on that and I would love to hear your thoughts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, when, when you're discussing policy and legislation, regulation, or anything that governs a large subset of people, you, you have to take emotion out of it. And I think group thing is a consequence of emotion, things that feel good, feel right. And when you get too moralistic with policy, what you end up with is black and white thinking, right? Where it's either good or it's bad. And I think we kind of need to break away from that because I think that's fear-based decision-making and move into more rational decision-making and think really broad-based what's best for the largest whole of, um, people and society. And right now from perspective of Congress, you're looking at the people as a whole, right? Where nobody's going to be wholly happy, but by and large, it's going to benefit, um, the greater, uh, sense of defending the, you know, the greater sense of good, if you will. I don't really like using the word good because it's, you know, a little moralistic, but when you compare, you know, rational based decision-making to groupthink, groupthink is very like, what's good for us? What's good for what benefits a certain group of people? And I think we just need to break away from that and really think of this country as a whole. Yeah, definitely. And I think if you don't get out of that box of groupthink, then there's never any new ideas and you just continue to feed each other um, like-minded ideas. Exactly. You create a silo and, and with that silo, I mean, you get radicalization because all you do is you have the same like feedback, uh, same feedback loop, which just keeps coming back and it keeps fueling itself. And that's a really dangerous path. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and then I do, like you said, uh, one should only be judged by their conduct and the quality of their character. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the, the famous, and I thought, you know, widely accepted quote by Martin Luther King, where he said, where one shall be judged by the content of the, you know, not the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But we're, you know, for some reason, shifting away from that for one reason or another. Yeah, I got to do my favorite Martin Luther King quote. Can I share mine? <laughs> please, please. Yes, do. <laughs> um, in the, oh, wait, I don't want to mess it up, but it, um, it's the one that's in the end, you will remember not the words of your enemies, but the silence of your friends. Yes. Absolutely. Love, love, love that one. Yeah. Uh, talk about a call to action right there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. I wanted to talk to you. All right. So I, I, because you're military or you were, um, love to talk military. Uh, I, I want to get back. I do want to get back to the candidates that you're running against, um, um, at the end, but I want to yeah. talk to you about, so three things I would, well, let's talk about first the wokeness in the military. And then if mm-hmm. we could translate into like your thoughts on suicide and ways that we um, could look at preventing that in the future, like preventing the numbers of suicide. 
Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, wokeness in the military, um, you know, when general Jim Mattis was sucked off, um, politics aside, he made a very poignant decision to eliminate needless training. Um, and I thought that was such an effective and so good for morale across the military in ways that I think the, um, the non-military people can't even begin to imagine because the military serves a purpose and it is our action arm for defending the homeland, right? It's, I mean, I don't want to boil the humanity of the military down, but really it's a tool to defend the homeland. And when you raise your right hand, you know what you're contributing to. You're fighting to support and defend the constitution. And when you have these, um, when you have this controlled environment that looks like the ideal social experiment uh, lab or environment for sociologists, I mean, they've just started to run amok with seeing, you know, treating the military like a petri dish for these concepts that they just want to try out, like unconscious bias and really uh, water down critical race theory concepts to, you know, modifying the way the military interacts in the sociological makeup of the military. And that's just not what the military is made for. It encumbers an already taxed resource. It's a finite resource. Um, and we need to treat it with the care and importance that it has. And therefore the military serves one purpose and it needs to be manned, trained and equipped. And the spouses need to be, the families of our military members need to be taken care of. And that's it. Anything outside of that, I think is just self-serving by an entity that has no interest in what the military serves to do. Yeah, I think that's another great answer. Um, and I wonder too, because like I was a company commander for two different commands and I wonder what annual training looks like now because, and I'm not, a, I'm not opposed <laughs> to the extremist training. Like, you know, I think it's something that if it is truly an issue, I did not yeah. see it. Also, you know, I was also maybe not privy to see it. So I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Yeah. But if, um, you know, if that's something that is taken over in addition to like all the other annual training, I just... I'm glad I'm not a commander anymore because it's a nightmare, right? It's encumbering. It's encumbering. There's 24 hours in a day. There's, you know, a finite number of days in a week. And it's just, you know, do wear the soldier down or the service member down with these arbitrary requests by people who aren't even really in the military themselves. They're imposing their worldview into onto the military. And that's just, so yeah, to, to answer your question, annual training is starting to become nightmarish. Um, but what I do agree with is training that serves a purpose. If there is a widespread level of direct race-related violence, I mean, we have the EO program for that, right? Where you have equal opportunity, where you feel like you're being targeted for racial purposes. Boom, EO program exists. Like, what is this additional training? Why are we molding the minds of people who signed up to serve their country? Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I think that's a good point too, that you said that a lot of this, this training is mandated from people that don't understand the culture and don't understand. And then I always found um, that um, I did two deployments in Iraq, but I always felt that like in garrison, we just came up with a lot of training that we thought, you know, made us like training to just have training. And you touched on that meaningless yeah. training. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting <laughs> for everybody involved. <laughs> it's exhausting for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, of course, when you train on everything, then you lose when you actually have something important that you want to talk exactly, about. Exactly. You lose, you lose the momentum to actually make that something that they listen to. Yeah. So I get off on a tangent on that because I will. Um, <laughs> no, it's a very valid question. I mean, it leads to morale, right? When you lose that momentum and you talked about suicide in the military. Um, yeah, it... 
did you want to skip to that or did you want to make a comment? I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, please. I'm sorry. I get ahead of myself, but please go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine. You're fine. I, I did the same thing too. Um, suicide in the military is a very real and pressing issue that um, I'm not going to pretend to have an answer or a solution to. Um, I have been impacted by it. I did at a very, very young age. Um, I had a friend that did commit suicide. Um, they were in the military and my heart goes out. I was enlisted, so I was never in a commanding capacity, but my heart goes out to every commander and every service member facing that situation, whether it's yourself, your, your, um, unit member, your subordinate, doesn't matter. Um, it's, that's what we really need to be focusing on. If these sociologists really want to treat the military and really, you know, address the sociological issues facing the military instead of unconscious bias, whether you think you might be a racist, like how about improving um, the psychological health of the military and focusing on, you know, the factors that contribute to suicidal ideation? Yeah, I uh, worked with um, the Brandon Act recently and that the legislation was passed and it's supposed to like allow sailors, soldiers, Marines to receive mental health care uh, without repercussion. And I've been speaking, we've been speaking about what that implementation will look like because yes, the legislation passed, but then, you know, the implementation goes down to the company level or mm-hmm. and you wonder like how that's going to be implemented. So I don't know it's all the time that legislation is the, is the exact answer or approach, but yeah. And I mean, you're talking about like, I, I only, I spent a lot of time working primarily in the sensitive side of the world where you hold top secret clearances and people worry about seeing, seeking out mental health support due to that stigmatization. Am I going to lose my clearance? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my livelihood? Um, if I could make one suggestion, it would be create a culture of safety. You know, if there's something wrong, take care of it ahead of time before it becomes a problem. And if we cultivate that across the board, extending to physical and um, mental health, I think that would, I personally, I'm not, I'm not a mental health provider, at all. <laughs> but um, I, I think if, there's a whole of like a whole of unit effort to promote that type of culture. I think that'll make a huge difference. Absolutely. Preventative maintenance. I mean, especially if you spend like 10 years in and you've got a bunch of tours, preventative maintenance go a long way. Exactly. Um, I wanted to talk to you. So I saw you have Annapolis in your district, right? I do. I do. Naval That's, Academy go. How do you feel about that? That's kind of exciting. That's a, I mean, that is a huge hub. Military it hub. Is. It is a huge military hub. Um, and culturally it's actually very interesting because you don't have a lot of people that are inclined to vote Republican, but, um, our governor, governor Hogan did win that region, that area. So I'm personally very excited about it. Um, both my counties right now, I know if you Google my district right now, it looks very, very gerrymandered because the maps aren't widely available as of the recording of this um, episode, but really it's shrunk down. It's very compact. It's two count, two counties and a sliver of a third county. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited about it personally. Yeah. And then of course we talked earlier, you have Baltimore, which is, do you have the whole city or is there a cut? Actually, I no longer have Baltimore in any capacity. So we're, we're look, so Baltimore city is its own region um and so that finally got fairly treated and it's its own congressional district okay when did that change very very recently and that's why the the maps are kind of hard to find um so right now as of the recording you're looking at like five counties but since then we've had a hotly contested redistricting 
drama, if you will, and the maps that have finally been agreed upon are Anne Arundel County, which includes Annapolis, Howard County, and the largest city from what I understand, I think is Columbia and a bit of Carroll County, which is a very Republican um, uh, county. Yeah, because I see both of your senators are Democratic, too, or Democratic. Very, very, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, talk to me about, um, second to last question, because I know you're busy. Um, no talk, talk to me about, so you have four uh, Republicans that will be in the primary with you on July 19th. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a few people that have found themselves redistricted into my um, my district, but right now, the very strong candidates, I would say, that have been actively campaigning and showing up and doing work to include myself is uh, one young guy. He's about in his mid-20s, and um, he, I guess, is a former political intern and no political experience outside of interning. And then another one who's a radio show host. But, you know, I, as a Republican, I know we all want what's best for the party. But as myself, I know I'm the best person for the position. I love that confidence. Yes, I was like, <laughs> I was not impressed with any of them. I know that's funny because you know, my vote is you. Um, oh, I, thank I, you. <laughs> but I definitely was not like that impressed. And we just had um, our congressional um, election and district uh seven in ohio and um, i was really surprised at the winning of that like well so jd vance's senate but then um an underdog uh took ohio wow. so took that district and so basically it was because the other two um republicans had had talked smack about trump oh wow okay yeah i mean that'll do it maryland's kind of odd in that sense because we have um governor hogan who's decidedly not the closest of friends with Trump. Uh, you could Google to find out the, the extent, but um, everybody's just ready for change. Everybody is equally hit hard across the board by inflation, poor education and crime. So that's, that's kind of our issues here. Um, one other thing. Uh, well, talk to me um, about BLM, your thoughts on BLM, and then also um, your thoughts on def- defund the police. Sure. Um, I'm vehemently anti-defunding the police. And I think most people that are in the issue of, you know, BLM and are having that where those conversations are happening, don't want the police defunded. They want the police to work. And I think that comes in the form of supporting our police, enabling our police. There are service members truly working on the homeland. I mean, military, we get to leave and go elsewhere to go work. Our police are doing the work here. So they deserve our utmost support. Um, from the federal level, state level, and the local municipal level. With regard to BLM, um, I think it's important to note the difference. One, uh, the phrase itself, do Black Lives Matter, I think unequivocally, yes. I I don't think that's partisan in any capacity. Black lives do matter. Um, There is a racial component to crime. There is a racial um, relationship. But I think the organization BLM has done a disservice to that sentiment of you know what's the role of race in that an issue revolving around crime and police brutality and all of that so i think there needs to be a whole of society effort to kind of reconsider this and how um race is treated in the context of crime and police intervention um and so i think that comes in the form of better funding and effective funding which also applies to the military effective funding meaning holding police forces uh, accountable to identifying your key needs, um, making sure that everybody's held accountable to their behavior, 
I support body cams on police officers. I do support community policing. And I do believe in strong policing too. Um, consequences matter. And police presence and police activity in an area denotes safety. And when you take police out of, you know, the local enforcers out of an environment that allows crime to fester. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of how I look at it. Side note, can you hear my dogs by any chance? I can, but I'm not worried about it. Are you? <laughs> I'm not bothered by it, but they just like snuck out and I apologize. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on. Let's go. And then I saw you had on your, um, I saw you had on your Instagram page, Winston Sears. Uh, for our listeners, that's the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. You had an event for her and I just loved her. I watched her during the election and I really have like a high regard for her. She's absolutely amazing. Yes. Um, so She's, she's my superhero. She's a vet. She's an immigrant, um, very parallel stories. And I couldn't be more honored to, um, have her at our event. I'm actually a committee member of Baltimore city's Republican party. So central committee. And so, yeah, that's, that's our Lincoln Reagan dinner. Douglas dinner is she's our guest speaker. Nice. Very nice. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on Carrie on podcast. And of course you have my vote. I won't be voting in Maryland, but, um, <laughs> be following you and is there anything else that you wanted to say to our listeners before I let you go because I in case we didn't cover anything or any last minute thoughts yeah um vote you know vote for the change you want to see um you can also find me on my website at amal it's spelled a m as in mike a l for congress.com and you, my social medias are amal for the number four congress on twitter and instagram um yeah and honestly go vote go register to vote, get at least a friend or two to also go and register to vote. I think the issue that we talk about a lot recently is election integrity. And I think integrity is really an individual effort. So do your part to vote honestly, do your part to vote with your conscience and do your best to just be a part of this civic decision that we get to make as a community, which is voting. It's a right we take that we are very lucky to enjoy here in the United States. Yeah. And do your research. Make sure you know who you're voting for. What are their policies? I mean, I, people say that a lot, too, that they're not going to vote because of our elections. Uh, you know what happened or what what did or didn't happen at this point? Yeah. Um, like, no, you need to get out and vote and you still need yeah. to. Like, you, you That is your duty as a as a citizen. So exactly. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of it on my end. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much and hopefully we'll be able to have you come back on the podcast and chat with us a little bit more closer to uh, the primaries. I would be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. Thanks. Bye.